Great to see everyone. We know others are going to trickle in, but we want to start right on time since we only have an hour together and um, we have some very rich learning to do together. Um, reminder that uh, next week we're learning with Rabbanit Karen Miller Jackson on if, Ra if Rashi had Facebook, Jewish perspective on cancel culture, culture and offline shaming. Uh, excuse me, on online shaming. <laughs> And, um, and then our partnership with Mount Sinai next week, also till death do us part, family life and the afterlife in Jewish thought. This is with uh, Professor David Chayvitz. So um, we are pleased today to be here with our friend, Professor Joel Gariboff, who joined the faculty in religious studies at ASU in 1978. His research and teaching focuses on Judaism and antiquity, Jewish ethics and American Judaism. His most recent publication is a co-edited book, uh, a co-edited book, Non-Denominational Judaism, Perspectives on Pluralism and Inclusion in 21st Century Jewish Professional Education. I have had the chance to, to uh, get to know Professor Gervoff and just incredibly impressed with uh, his scholarship, his pedagogy, and of course, his menschlichkeit. Um, and so it's a delight to have him once again. We don't often bring people back to BBM so, so many times. Usually once is enough. Uh, they're, they're wonderful, but once is enough, Professor Gerboff has become a regular here with us. Our topic today, who and what should I fear early rabbinic views? Professor Gerboff, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Rabbi Shmuley. It's really uh, my pleasure to always come and teach. And also, I have the occasion here of seeing some longtime uh, associates uh, from Phoenix. Uh, due to the pandemic, I haven't been in town for now just uh, over a year. Uh, though I've been, of course, doing all my teaching at ASU, and I think we've all uh, adjusted to the realities, but hopefully uh, we will shortly be able to return to more face-to-face -face encounters. Uh, and uh, in fact, uh, the word of face-to-face -face encounter, as we will see in a moment, is somewhat central to the topic that I'm going to discuss today. Words associated with fear are ubiquitous, appear commonly throughout the biblical text, throughout the Tanakh, in Second Temple Jewish writings, and then in turn in various rabbinic texts over the ages. Words, these words include terms that we tend to translate as fear itself, such as yira or ema uh, or pachad, other words associated with fear refer more to the bodily manifestations of it, either in the form of trembling, like charad or ragaz, or an idiomatic expressions that also express some kind of bodily response, like rafe yadayim, weak of hand, or rachlevav, or rachlev, which means uh, faint of heart. Uh, one of the interesting questions, though, with regard to all these terms is exactly what they refer to, to begin with. And then in turn, how various Jewish texts over the ages have found this way, this notion, these terms as associated with various types of behavior and important or relevant to certain encounters that we have as human. The... Um, Term, most common term, of course, is yira, lirot. Uh, it has many forms. 
And the term often is translated as to refer to something what we think of as an emotion. So one fears someone, something, some occasion. In recent years, and this is what I've been spending a good deal of my scholarship on, looking at what we think of as emotions in relationship to Jewish texts, it turns out to be the case that, in fact, uh, as many of you know, uh, until medieval times and modern times, there was actually no word for emotions in Hebrew. Now we use the word regashim, and it begins to emerge in the Middle Ages. And the question is, does the Bible even have anything like what we think of as uh, an emotion? Uh, this has also to do with uh, trying to unpack and disclose what is the notion of the self, and do, do biblical texts have a, a sense of the self in which there's kind of like an interior space in which a person reflectively thinks about what's going on with themselves? It, scholarship on uh, emotions in biblical texts, and particularly on a term uh, we associate with fear, actually show that in many instances, these have nothing to do with what we think of as emotions uh, themselves. Uh, this would take a long time to explain here, but, but briefly, I would note, and this uh, comes particularly to the term of fear, uh, recent scholarship, and if you want to see an interesting work by uh, Professor Philip Lassiter called Faces of Fear, uh, show that, in fact, what, what references especially to Yirei Hashem, or Yirat Elohim, fear of God in some sense, is not anything to deal say about an emotional response to the divine presence. Rather, what it really reflects is the notion that people should be subservient to the deity. Uh, in biblical text, somebody who is Yireh Hashem or Yireh Elohim is someone who positionally sees themselves in a hierarchical relationship with the deity. And it is in a submissive uh, is a submissive position within that relationship. So one who quote fears God is not so much having some type of emotional reaction, but we know from iconography from the ancient Near East from other texts what, that what someone who's described in this way is positioning themselves as um, subservient to some other person. The same uh, term is used in other contexts and biblical sources, such as with other figures in power, uh, with regard to kings, or, or even in domestic relationships as well. Uh, and um, we will come to some of those texts in a minute, uh, but a common one, for example, is the text from Vayikra Leviticus 19.3, Ish avi v'imoti ra'u, a child or a person doesn't have to be a child of a child in age, it could also be an adult child, but a child should yare, and we'll come back to figure out what that means, their mother and father. Uh, clearly, I think we all would understand the hierarchical structure of relationships of parents and children, and that's probably what the term uh, comes to mean. And today, I'd like to though, focus uh, more on rabbinic uh, developments in the understanding of the idea of fear. Uh, before that, I should also note, of course, biblical texts do know of something like the flight-fright uh, reaction. A famous text from the prophet Amos, chapter 316 says, 
If a lion roars, who would not be afraid? Uh, so it's clear they have a sense that there may be some kind of a bodily reaction to certain sources of fear, uh, and perhaps one of the more common places where this um, kind of fear reaction uh, is also displayed is in the various texts associated with the revelation at Mount Sinai, where the, the thunder and the lightning is often then described as giving rise to some form of yirah, or, or fear among the Israelites on that occasion. Now, without getting into a long discussion, that doesn't mean that they had some kind of interior cognizance of fear as we think of an emotion, but clearly they do have a, a recognition of some form of bodily responses to certain kinds of encounters. What I wanna to do today, to go back to the point I was making, is look particularly at some rabbinic developments with regard to fear, especially in early rabbinic texts. But before I even get there, I just want to uh, familiarize with you, familiarize you or, or, or re-encounter some texts that are very familiar to us that appear in the later Jewish liturgy, which make evident the importance of this notion of yira, uh, of, of what will translate as fear in uh, various parts of the Jewish liturgy. So um, a classic example is from the second bracha before the Shema uh, in the morning. And most of us know the song, if we're regular shulgoers, in English, uh, it is translated, and enlighten, enlighten our eyes in your Torah and cause our hearts to hold fast to your commitment and to make our heart single-hearted to love and fear your name. This is a text I think very familiar to many of us. It's, it's taken from, in a sense, a reformulation of a verse from the book of Deuteronomy. And now, uh, what does, uh, now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God demand of you? This is text two, only to fear Yirah, the Lord your God, to walk in his path, to love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. Um, we, we may have a little occasion to talk about this uh, deployment, the uh, use of the terms love and fear. But I think if you actually look at the text here, there, there's no uh, development of any particular contrast drawn or trying to make evident what is the difference between love and fear. Uh, that is something we will come back to uh, in a few moments. Another prayer that, again, may be familiar to you, where references to fear appear in, uh, biblical, in the Jewish liturgy is in the Birkat HaKodesh, uh, the prayer that's um, recited uh, on the Shabbat before uh, the new month, before the new Rosh Chodesh. Uh, and the prayer, as many of you know, uh, in English, here's the English version, may it build your will, Adonai, our God, and God of our ancestors, that you bring this new month to us for goodness and for blessing. Grant us long lives filled with peace, goodness, blessing, sustenance, and physical health. Lives characterized by Yirat Shamayim v'yirachet, fear of heaven and fear of sin, lives of embarrassment and shame, uh, lives free of embarrassment and shame, 
lives of wealth and honor, lives characterized by your love of Torah, and Yirat Shamayim Magadvir of heaven, lives in which our heartfelt requests will be fulfilled for good. Amen. Selah. And so here are two particular examples of the use of Yirat in, uh, in later Jewish liturgy. Now, many of you are probably already familiar with the problem of how to translate the word Yira. Uh, and more commonly, and as it's developed, and I'll try to give you a sense of where that comes. In time, the word Yira, uh, beyond meaning some form of subservient uh, positioning of oneself to somebody who is greater than you, again, without implying any kind of emotional response, or we know Yirat Shemayim probably simply means piety, living a life of one who stands in such a relationship. In time, develops a notion of two different types of fear. Medieval Jewish thinkers, though I think it has a root in some of the biblical rabbinic texts I won't have time to study today, but I'll mention in a moment, in medieval Jewish philosophy, in Kabbalah, there is uh, two different times uh, of fear become uh, distinguished. One is seen as the lower fear, which is yirata onesh, or fear of being punished. And the other type of fear, which now in English we tend to translate so as to not confuse it, we translate it either awe or reverence. Uh, uh, rabbinic, uh, medieval rabbinic culture was called Yirat HaRomamut, the awe or reverence of the greatness of uh, the deity. And so by medieval times, there's a clear distinction drawn between different types of positioning of oneself relationship to God. And in many ways, they come to understand the fear of punishment is what we think of as being afraid of something. Whereas the fear of the divine being itself as reverence, as the great majesty, is not so much a fear in sense of being afraid of something, but we will now use the word awe or reverence for. Now, actually, most people who have studied the biblical text and the early usages of Yirah would argue that these ideas are not actually found in the biblical text at all. But over the centuries, since they have become the conventional understanding, they have been read back in. That's what the book by Lassiter uh, that I uh, held up for a moment ago argues and demonstrates that it's very hard to show that the biblical text knows of a distinction between awe and fear. Uh, the biblical text also tends to use the word yira far more than ahava. There are far more references to Yirat Hashem or Yirat Elohim than there are Havat Hashem. Those are very rare, and they're mostly actually in the book of Deuteronomy uh, that you find the reference to Hava as some kind of love as the proper relationship with the deity. And, and as noted, and if you trace through the Second Temple period, virtually no Second Temple source, and here, here we have to go beyond the biblical canon, but to look at sources in Hebrew and in Greek, uh, such as uh, books that are now contained in the Apocrypha uh, or pseudepigraphic sources of which there are many, as well as in the writings of somebody like Philo, 
the Jewish philosopher from Alexandria in the first century, as well as in New Testament sources, which of course grow out of much of the same tradition as well. So what, what are some of the, with regard Ahava and Yira, drawing a distinction between love and fear, at least from what I've been able to find, is one of uh, the more unique aspects of the rabbinic contribution to figuring out what they mean by Yirat Adonai, Yirat Elohim. And in fact, uh, uh, many texts do not draw any significant distinction. They do not try to figure out how they relate to each other. Though, in addition to the rabbinic texts that do that, uh, particularly in a passage in a rabbinic midrash called Sifrei Devarim. There's a long discussion about how they relate to each other. Uh, so that the only other writings where the distinction begins to be drawn is between in Philo and in New Testament sources where you start finding references, you should only love God, not fear God. And so the, the relationship between those two terms becomes somewhat problematic. Another area where the rabbinic sources also expend some time trying to figure out the relationship of, uh, of fear to other uh, uh, kinds of relational terms is in terms of the uh, relationship of, of parents and children. Uh, there too, uh, because of the different biblical texts, the Ten Commandments, as many of you know, uh, talks about you should honor your parents, and as I mentioned before, in Leviticus, we find the reference to Isha Vivi Motirau. Uh, a person should yira their parents. And most of the Second Temple sources do not bring those two texts into conversation with each other. They tend to only cite the text about honor. It's only in Philo, as far as I found, that they, Philo actually does begin to figure out how the two go together. Uh, and rabbinic sources equally as well have some interesting and rich discussions about how Kavod and Yira fit together with regard to, um, uh, um, uh, in regard to the relationship between children and parents. There are three other areas, though, that become developed in relatively interesting ways as the rabbis begin to think about Yira. And I want to look at some sources with you somewhat quickly, and I wish we had time to discuss them in depth, that really begin to add some new dimension and to flesh out the understanding of Yira in rabbinic texts. These three areas are the first one and the most prominent, uh, the numerous texts that use the term Yirat Chet. If you recall above, in the text for the blessing of the new month, <clears throat> you have a reference to may it be a month of Yirat Shamayim in Yirat Chet. Actually, both those terms are distinctly rabbinic. Uh, Yirat Shamayim, fear of heaven, you could say is simply a way of rephrasing the biblical term Yirat Hashem or Yirat Elohim and the rabbis instead use the word heaven instead of the name of God. So that's nothing uniquely new. But the concept Yirat is not biblical. It is not found in any second temple source, but is first found in rabbinic texts. And part of our project in the next few minutes will you try to figure out what does Yirat mean for the rabbis? What is this quote fear of sin about? Uh, 
in the course of looking at text, we'll find another area where the rabbis make an interesting novel contribution. And that is with regard to the uh, text in Deuteronomy 20, which allows certain individuals not to have to go forth to battle. And in a moment, we'll see some very interesting ways in which the rabbis transform a text, which seems to be talking about somebody can be excused from battle if they're really truly afraid of warfare itself, to having a, a different understanding of what the text is about. And the third text that I will look with you, a third area of a text we'll look at briefly, are texts associated with uh, Yerat, uh, Yerat Harav, or the fear or reverence or for, for one's teacher, or, uh, which is an interesting idea, which I hope we'll have a little time to look at. Again, not found in any sources that I can detect for how student-parent relationships are described in, in any Jewish text uh, prior to the rabbinic sources. So with that, I'd like to then quickly look at a number of uh, sources uh, that relate to Yirat Chet and to uh, go through them quickly. And then as time permits at the last 15 minutes of our time to um, have, if I would uh, have you uh, respond to me and share your thoughts as to what these texts are about. My normal style of teaching is to read a text and then to have you respond and we converse about it but time and the medium are not the most uh, convenient for that. So we'll now look at text number four. And I think you're gonna see the sources aren't all that helpful to quite figure out what this is all about. So this is from uh, a Mishnah Shekalim. A shekel, as you know, is the monetary unit. Uh, the, this the tractate actually discusses the giving of the half shekel. We just had uh, celebrated Shabbat Shekalim. Uh, and um, the and the, the uh, this whole tractate uh, develops these themes. And the text reads as follows. There were two chambers in the temple. There was the temple of secret gifts, chashaim, and the other one was the temple of vessels. The temple of secret gifts, yirei-chet, sin-fearing persons, used to put their gifts there in secret and the poor would come and this, uh, descended, uh, 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 who were descended of the virtuous would secretly uh, support them from there. Some of you know the Maimonides uh, theory of the eight uh, stages of charity. This is, this, this is the basis of this idea that a high form of charity is to give secretly and to take secretly and not to embarrass the person. Here, the person who would make the donation is called sinfiri. By contrast, and I love this description, I can just picture what's going on. The chamber of vessels, where, where whoever offered a vessel of his, as a gift would throw, zarek, it in, and once in every 30 days, the treasurers would open them and, the, and look at the vessels that they found there, and they would use them for the repair of the house, of uh, the temple, Bera Kabayat, and the others were sold, and their uh, price were then used for Bera Kabayat, uh, the upkeep of the temple. Uh, this is how, as it were, they kept the lights running in the temple. They made the repairs uh, by making these donations. Clearly, there's some merit 
to giving uh, uh, gifts of uh, sort to help the poor. And the people who are designated as doing so are called Yirei Chet. Now, that doesn't help us very much to figure out what a Yirei Chet is. So we turn now to text number uh, uh, five, and it's on the next page. This is the last Mishnah in the tractate of Sota. Uh, Sota, as you know, is the, the tractate that deals with the rules and rights for the suspected adulteress, or a man who suspects his wife of infidelity, can subject her to a whole ordeal. And the tractate ends, as do several tractates, with long kind of uh, homiletical material that really don't have anything to do with the tractate, but sort of end as often rabbinic drashotu, they call it a peroration, a, a ending in which is somewhat uh, upbeat or um, uh, what we call agonic in content. So here's here, three, there are three passages here, and I've only excerpted part of them. Each of these three statements, or you'll see they're like lists, um, also referred to Yirei Chet. So the first one is a, uh, a, a text uh, that um, so has a similar form. When Rabbi X died, Z stopped. Right? When Rabbi X died, Z stopped. So when Rabbi Meir died, the composers of fable ceased. When Ben-Azai died, the diligent students of Torah ceased. When Ben-Zoma died, the expounders ceased. When Joshua died, goodness ceased from the world, right? You get the sense of this. And the last two items in the list are, when Ishmael ben Fabi died, the splendor of the priesthood ceased. And Rebbe, when Rebbe died, anava virat chet ceased. Humility and fear of sin. Now, the, the question is, of course, what does fear of sin again mean? And is there, is there any significance in associating that particular uh, set of uh, character traits or, or phenomenon in the world with Reb, Rabbi? Rabbi is Rabbi Judah, the patriarch, the editor of the Mishnah. Of course, you have to wonder if he's writing this about himself and he's saying when I died or, or well, perhaps he didn't write it about himself. The students wrote it about him, that humility and fear of sin ceased. Obviously, the overall list sort of talks about uh, a typical rabbinic motif of the decline of the generations. Oh, it was so much better than in the past, and look where we are now. And, and the last item on the list, and whether that's significant again, is that the uh, last person mentioned with his death, then fear of sin also occurred in the world. Well, obviously, some other things that are of great priority to the rabbis had as a word uh, ended when earlier figures. So the, the names in the list are also in the sequence of their uh, uh, generations. So Rebbe Meir is a much earlier figure than Rebbe uh, Rabbi. And, and, but clearly Torah ceased already long before this. Uh, if you take the list seriously, when Ben Azai died, then uh, students of Torah already ceased. Of course, that's a kind of a, Weird statements since Ben Azai is from around the year 100, 120. What were the rabbis doing for 80 years, uh, by up to the time of, uh, of Rabbi Judah? So, this whole list has to be taken with a grain of salt. We have a similar saying, which I won't read in depth, which is the Rabbi Eliezer the Great says on the middle of the page. From the same idea, from the time the temple was destroyed, the sages began to be like scribes. Again, a decline of generations. 
the scribes are like synagogue attendants, synagogue attendants like common people, and common people uh, more and more debased. And, and nobody seeks, and nobody seeks. Upon whom shall we uh, depend? Upon our father of the heaven. And now we get to an interesting whole concept, which we could do a whole other class on. Uh, this is uh, called uh, In the Footsteps of the Messiah, which is a fascinating concept in, in rabbinic thought that before the Messiah comes, something's going to happen uh, in the world. There are going to be certain transformations. So in the footsteps of the Messiah, uh, um, insolence will increase and the, and the cost of living will go up uh, uh, greatly. The, the fruit, the, the vine will yield its fruit, but wine will be expensive, right? The government will turn to heresy and we will not, uh, and there'll be no one to rebuke. Uh, the meeting of places of scholars will be for, uh, we, we call it useful licentiousness. And then we get to geographic, the Galilee will be destroyed. Gabal will be desolated. The dwellers of the, uh, the the dwellers on the frontier will go about begging from place to place without anyone to take pity on them. The wisdom of the learned will rot, and the fear of sin will be the fears of sin will be despised, and the truth will be lacking with youth. The, the truth will be lacking. Youth will put old men to shame. Yalbinu. Now, this is an interesting thing we'll see in a minute that somehow shame seems coming up in relationship to fear of sin. Again, it's not exactly clear what fear of sin would be here. Does its placement on the list suggest that it's even a further deterioration? But the concept is there. And then the last item in the list is an interesting saying assigned to a very uh, sort of very different rabbinic figure, a minor rabbinic character, but about whom certain miracles are told. This famous uh, Pinchas ben Yair's uh, famous donkey. And uh, Pinchas may not be so famous to you, but to the rabbis knew who he was well. It's like the Francis in, in rabbinic literature. Uh, when Pinchas ben Yair uh, says, Heedfulness leads to cleanliness. Cleanliness leads to purity. Purity leads to separation. Separation leads to kedusha. And here we go, kedusha to anava to modesty. Remember above with the Rebbe when he died, uh, humility or modesty and fear of sin were connected. Here we come, holiness leads to modesty. Modesty leads to fear of sin. Fear of sin leads to piety or chasidut, and chasidut leads to ruach hakodesh. Ruach hakodesh, the Holy Spirit, is understood to be connected to prophecy. There's a very interesting list. It has nothing to do so much with halachic observance. It has sort of to do with character traits and maybe a form of piety, uh, like a holy man piety that individuals who have certain kind of qualities uh, uh, have uh, um, abilities to, um, in this case, at the, at the top of the ladder, uh, attain the ability to receive prophecy, Ruach HaKodesh. There's something interesting about Yerachet. Of course, it's still not all clear what it's all about. 
uh, and we'll come to that in, in a minute uh, and see if we can make any sense out of it. But clearly, Yirat Chet is not seen as a trivial matter. It's, again, a unique rabbinic concept, not found biblically, not found in Second Temple literature. And here it's like one rung below or two rungs below being able to receive prophecy. The next text that I won't read in detail, but again, a very interesting text about another interesting rabbinic figure. This is a text number six uh, at the bottom of the second page, uh, Mishnah Eliyot 5.6. This is a, about a figure named Akavya ben Mahalalel. And you can read very quickly, he testified about four things. They said to Akavya, retract these four things and we will make you the head of the court of Israel. He said to them, it is better for me to be a fool of all my days than I should become even for one hour a wicked man before God. So they shouldn't say he withdrew his opinions for the sake of power. He saw himself as a man of principle. The, the text will go on to say what he taught, but he was clearly contradicting everybody else. What did they do? They excommunicated him. And he died. And he was under excommunication and the uh, court stoned his coffin. Uh, obviously, this position does not see a Kavya ben Mahalalel as a role model. Even if he stood by principle, he seemed to be uh, tearing apart the community by undermining communal authority. But Rabbi Judah, another rabbinic sage, to live back to the time of Bar Kochba, Rabbi Judah said, God forbid that one should say that Akabia was excommunicated, for the courtyard is never locked for a man in uh, Israel who was equal to Akavya ben Mahalalel in wisdom and in Yirat Chet. Fascinating. This individual, again, a somewhat marginal figure, is, uh, at least in the alternative opinion, is claimed to be a person of Chachma and Yirat Chet, whether it has to do with observance of the law, but clearly there's a protestation against the notion that in some way he was uh, so evil and so bad that he not only was excommunicated, his coffin was stoned. To the contrary, he was a model of Yirat Chet. Uh, the facts obviously were, we live here also in a world of alternative facts as it seems, and we'll leave that aside for another day. Uh, the final text uh, I'd like to look at before we turn to, uh, uh, well, the final text from uh, this is an, again from the Mishnah, the earliest rabbinic document. Another interesting figure, Hanina Bendosa, who also to whom is ascribed the various kinds of miraculous interventions. He says, anyone who fears sins, Yerechet, or anyone who has Yerat Chatao, it says his fear of sin precedes his wisdom, his wisdom will endure. Now, wisdom, of course, is very important to the rabbis. Chachma requires Yirat Chet. But anyone whose wisdom precedes, precedes his fear of sin, his wisdom will not endure. In the second half, simile, he used to say, anyone who deeds exceeds his wisdom, his wisdom is enduring. But anyone whose wisdom exceeds his deeds, 
his wisdom will not endure. This is a typical of sayings in Mishnah, about highly complicated to really figure out what they're talking about. Clearly, wisdom is the highest value in rabbinic culture. But you, you, they, they are saying in this text that your wisdom will never survive unless you have either or both, yirat chet and proper deeds. So you just can't be a know-it-all. You have to have certain character to who you are and you have to live a certain way. In Yirat Chet, in this saying, is seen again as a fundamental attribute central to the entire rabbinic uh, uh, enterprise. And this is somewhat different, though, interestingly, than the text we read before about there's a connection, or at least on the latter, Yirat Chet leads to uh, Ruach HaKodesh, was in some ways, uh, the, which is the Holy Spirit, was uh, again, we'd have time, if we had time, we could go into this. But the rabbis deny themselves Ruach HaKodesh. They say Ruach HaKodesh no longer exists. And whatever they have as Torah is, emerges from their own conversation. So now you have an interesting interplay or contrast between Yerat Chet connected to uh, um, wisdom and Yerat Chet, uh, uh, one rung below, uh, the attainment of the ability to receive the Holy Spirit or Ruach HaKodesh related to prophecy. It's something, again, to think about, are these different strands within rabbinic literature? I now want to look at a, uh, just to show you uh, how this text, this idea of Yerat Chet, plays out in a Midrash, uh, in a Midrashic text. So we're going to look at a quickly text number eight, which is from Mechilta. Mechilta is a rabbinic uh, exegetical commentary on the book of Shmot, on the book of Exodus. The, ver the verse from Exodus 20, 17 states, this is right after the given of the Ten Commandments, which precedes in this chapter. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you in order that Yirato may be ever with you. May his fear of him be with you so that you do not go astray. And so what does the Midrash do with this? Um, of course, it's um, typical, typical when a text repeats itself. So it says, do not be afraid, and then says, may his fear be upon you. The rabbis have to make clear each type reference to the same word must have slightly different meaning. So when it says, and may his fear be upon your faces, Fear here is, and here we saw this idea before, boshet panim, being shamefaced, which is related, I would argue, to anava, to humility. Shamefacedness is a good sign in man, so that you not sin. We are thereby appraised that shamefacedness, boshet, leads to fear of sin. So humbleness, a sense of a sense of um, shamefacedness are connected to the attainment of the trait of being Yarei Elohim, or Yarei Chet. Somebody who fears sin should be either humble or also be shamefaced. Maybe this begins to give us a sense of the meaning of the term. I want to, uh, in the last six minutes, so I want to see how this idea of fear of sin now gets connected to what I alluded to before, and this will be in text nine, the conduct of warfare. So there's a long passage in Deuteronomy 21 through eight, 
in Dvarim 21 through 8, which contains the first has a general statement about what happens when you go forth to war. The and, then, and then enumerates uh, a number of people who are excused from uh, being able, to, from required to go forth to war. And the text first says, and it shall be when you draw near to battle that the priest shall approach and speak to the people. This, pre, this priest, that's the uh, citation from the biblical text. And the Mishnah goes on to say, this priest is identified as the, uh, in the verse is the priest of war, a special role for a certain priest, the priest who inaugurates specifically to serve this function. The Torah dictates that the priest shall address and then citing again now from Deuteronomy 23, and he shall say to them, hear Israel, you draw near to battle, battle against your enemies. Let not your hearts be faint, rach levav, fear not, alti ra'u, and be not alarmed, and be not terrified of them. So here's the first comment on what those verses mean. Let your heart, because each of these have to be somewhat different in their reference, let your heart be faint, Due to, the, due to the neighing of horses and the sharpening of the enemy's swords. Fear not, due to the knocking of the shields and the noise of their boots. Nor be alarmed, due to the sounds of trumpets. So clearly the, the verse is parsed in such a way that it's the various um, stages or actions that take place in warfare that occasioned the fear on the part of the potential soldier. And they're telling them, don't be afraid of all those elements that are associated with warfare. Our very conventional understanding of what uh, would happen to somebody that's going forth to war. And then, uh, and the officer shall speak further to the people. Yeah, we this could. Is not no, I can't now. Somebody's not muted here. And the officer shall speak further to the people. This is a subsequent verse. So in between this, you have the various people who are exempted. And the people who are exempted is somebody got married, but yet hasn't uh, raised the family. Somebody's built a house, hasn't had a chance to live, live in it. And then the last person who is exempted from warfare is the one, it says the officer shall speak further to the people. And they say, say to him, what is, uh, uh, excuse me, what man is there that is fearful and faint-hearted, yarei and rach levav? Let him go home, let him go and return to his house. Rabbi Akiva says, the fearful and the faint-hearted is to be understood as, as indicated. That is a person who stands in battle ranks and to see a drawn sword uh, will, be will terrify him. So Akiva interprets this to mean, ah, a person who's, again, going back to the early comment, a person who fears battle, you should be exempted. Makes sense. But here's the, the interesting rabbinic twist. Because as an opposing opinion to Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Yossi HaGalili says that that is fearful and faint-hearted. This is one who is afraid because of his sins that he has. Mitiare me min averot. This is interesting. So now this is slightly different. Does have chet uses a different word for sin, avira, but you have a sense that somebody who, in fact, may be fearful because of no. What does it mean to be fearful of sins? Is that because of sins 
he has committed or sins he might commit. But the twist here is that uh, it is not simply a matter of somebody who is fearful of warfare, but now it's about their own fear of sin or their own sins that they become able to be exempted from warfare. No text that I found uh, from prior to the rabbinic text interprets the verses this way. And here you see, again, this introduction of the concept of Yirat as something central to Judaism, to rabbinic Judaism. In this case, if you are so intense, perhaps in your fear of your own sins or your sinning, uh, that you become exempted. And now I'd like to turn to our last category of what's novel in rabbinic thought. And no intention here, I don't mean to put myself in the person being spoken of in this text, but um, a series of texts we dealing with fear or reverence for one teacher. One text, the bait text, the short version is found in the Mishnah Avot, a saying by Elazar ben Shamua. It goes as follows, let the kavod, the honor of your student be dear to you as your own, and the honor of your chaver, your colleague, be as, uh, as the fear of reverence of your teacher, Yirat uh, uh, Rabo, and let the fear, the reverence of your teacher be as your Yirat Shamayim. Whoa. Clearly the rabbis here are creating a category I have not found in any prior literature, though I think I understand where it comes from, and I'll share that with you in a minute. But one should, your yere rabo, should be reverent or fearful of one's own teacher. Uh, that is a unique rabbinic concept. And you can see in the end of this, it's equated with the idea of uh, the fear or reverence of a teacher should be as the reverence you have for God himself, for the deity. You can see they're bringing together Yerat Adonai, Yerat Elohim, with Yerat Rabo. Fascinating idea. And in a Mechelta, this rabbinic text on uh, Exodus, we find a reference to this idea, same tradition in a slightly different form. This is a passage which uh, deals with uh, the battle with Amalek. Uh, and Moses says to Joshua, pick for, uh, pick some men, that's a, I was the end, pick men for us and go to battle. From which it is learned that he equated Joshua with himself. All men are thereby appraised, uh, apprised of, of, excuse me, apprised of proper deportment. Moses did not say to Joshua, choose for me men, but choose for us men. Clearly, you should treat, and this is interesting that Moses' humility, he's lowering himself to the same stage, same level as Joshua. And whence is it derived that the honors of a friend should be beloved to him as the fear of Morah of one's teacher? From Aaron. But Aaron said to Moses, I pray you, Adonai. Now, Aaron was Moses, was not he Moses' brother and older than him? How was it then that he said, Adonai, my Lord? How is it to be understood? He equated, that is, Aaron equated Moses with his teacher. 
And whence is it derived that fear of one's teacher or reverence for one's teacher? It should be equated with the reverence of heaven. From Joshua, the son of Nun, the, the, the attendant of Moses from, uh, from his youth who answered, this is a different uh, verse, uh, the story of Eldad and Medad and the prophets running around the camp. Uh, he said to Moses, my Lord, Moses destroy them. Joshua here calls Moses, my Lord, just as Aaron did. And interestingly, just as the Lord can destroy them, so can you. That is, one's reverence for one's teacher should be seen as if one is in the same level as one's reverence for God himself. And I end with a text that is not Tanaitic, but is a commentary on the book of Avot. It's a later work, probably fifth or sixth century. But it gives you a sense of what happens to this idea of reverence or fear of one teaching, of one's teacher. Yossi ben Yoezer, this is a saying from a different part of Mishnah Avot, let your house be a gathering place for the sages. How so? This teaches that a person's house should always be open to the sages and to their students and to their students' students. Sounds like the Hasidic story of the house being too crowded. And the students' students so that a person should be able to say to his friend, I save a place for you here, for you there. And another explanation of how should your house be a gathering place for the sages? When a student of the sages enters and says, teach me, if you have something to teach, teach it. But if not, let him go on his way. He, this potential student though, should not sit before you on a bed or on a chair or on a bench in any way on the same level as you are on at the time. Rather, this person, he should uh, sit before you on the ground. And anything that comes out of his, your mouth, he should accept it with reverence, ema, fear, yira, uh, quake, ritat, and with trembling, ziyah. Boy, if I could get my students to treat me like that, life would be a piece of cake. So I hope here we've looked at uh, several dimensions of what it might the rabbis are talking about when they refer to some kind of interrelationship. Is it really an emotional response of fear? Is it reverence? Or is it also just a matter of respecting the hierarchical structures in place? But clearly, I hope I've shown here some of the unique features that really become relevant to rabbinic thought on Yira, particularly the ideas Yirat Rabo, Yira in the context, uh, and Yira in the context of warfare becomes Yirat Chet, and the general notion of Yirat Chet, a distinctly rabbinic idea. I'll stop there, and uh, I think we have time for some questions. Yeah, amazing. So, Professor, if it's okay with you, this has been so rich. If it's okay for you, I would love to get a number of voices in the room, if you have a pen and paper, if we can hear just whoever has a question, and then you can just grab the few that resonate most with you, if that's okay. My pleasure. Okay, wonderful. So don't forget to unmute yourself, friends, and um, we'd love to hear some, some questions or reflections you have. You don't have to fear me. It's okay. <laughs> Judy. 
What what do you make of the of the spies who were afraid to go into into the Holy Land? Because they talked about themselves in a very psychological way as as grasshoppers. Yes. Yes. Great. Great. Good. Awesome, Judy. Yeah, somebody else? Um, I'm happy to throw one in after Lisa does. Okay, thanks, Julie. Uh, I was thinking about the hate in terms of uh, of, of Cain, right there in in, in chapter four. Uh, this is surely, uh, you know, if you do right, there's uplift, and if you do not, sin or hate couches at the door. And then, of course, there's all this consequence of not. Is there some sort of uh, built into that, uh, you know, fear of God in there, at least implied. Great, great. Um, I, so I wonder where, um, very interesting, I saw, so I wonder where uh, human emotion and, um, and morality intersect in regards to kind of how fungible or liquid, if you will, are these um, is our understanding of these emotions like and and in particular emotions as mitigating factors so if you look at if you look at warfare if someone is a, a conscientious objector to warfare right how sort of liquid is this this legal concept of fear in regards to other moral concerns in some sense or does this really have to be kind of uh, instinctual if that makes sense yeah uh, thank you these are these are all excellent excellent questions Let's well, see, uh, just before you jump oh, in, Professor, let's see if there's one or two more. Oh, sorry, I sorry. I, I, I thought you were, yeah, I'm happy to hear more. Yes. I see Fred might have unmuted himself. I'm not sure if that was intentional or not. Yeah, uh, uh, we know, for example, in English, that even over uh, a few hundred years or more, uh, the meaning of a word can, can change. Not only can it change, but it can come to mean the exact opposite of what it originally meant. Mm -hmm. uh, a a well-known example is, is uh, the word uh, uh, decimate. In Roman times, it meant one out of 10. Uh, in modern times, it means nine out of 10. So is it possible that the word, uh, uh, words that we're talking about that uh, relate to fear, that the meaning uh, has changed over time, and that possibly it's changed more than once over time. Great, great. Um, okay, one uh, one last one for me, unless there's anybody else. I've got Susan. one. Okay, yes, hi, Susan, yeah. Hi, um, I was wondering, uh, thinking about Moses's uh, unwillingness when he's talking with God about becoming the leader. And I don't know if that's necessarily his unwillingness as fear, but I was thinking about that situation. Okay. Great, okay. great. Okay, so, you know, sometimes, sometimes we talk, um, sometimes we like to say as rabbis that love is, love is measured in behaviors, not in emotions. And there's a lot of Jewish sources to back that. And I wonder how we think about fear as kind of assessed in legal categories through uh, through actions rather than kind of an assessment of heart trembling. So, okay, Professor, back to you. So I, I would say it's a good place to start. Uh, the biblical text from Deuteronomy uh, that, that gets into the higher data 
uh, clearly, the uh, the attitude or relationship you have with the deity is expressed primarily in behavior, and and if it doesn't mean some kind of interior feeling, but it really what the text says, you shall submit to the Lord, acknowledge the Lord's authority, and you'll keep the and the, as the member as the superior uh, member of the covenant relationship. And as such, you must do what I ask you to do, observe my commandments. So the scholarship of the biblical text would say exactly, it has nothing to do with being afraid of God or loving God. Uh, love also in biblical language actually means covenantal loyalty. You, you pledge your exclusive loyalty, your fidelity. It's not you love God emotionally. You don't fear God emotionally. That's probably the biblical meaning of all these terms, and, and, and um, at least in that context. And it's expressed through behavior which is um, uh, very primary in, in both biblical and rabbinic thought, though Yeratchet, it's interesting, appears in context <clears throat> where it's not so much about behavioral, it seems to become more about some kind of experience in the presence of, of, of something. So that goes back to Fred's question. Yes, exactly. These terms take on meaning, uh, new meanings, as I, as I mentioned at the beginning of my talk, Right, the concept of two different kinds of fear, fear and awe, uh, uh, fear and reverence, is not really demonstrable to you really. To, I think there is a rabbinic text that begins to distinguish between onesh and ahava and yira, that is punishment, uh, love and fear, especially in Sifre Deuteronomy, you begin to see that. And then as I noted in medieval Jewish philosophy and Kabbalah, this gets played out because the whole idea is they seem bothered by the notion that somebody who fears God is really at a high uh, uh, stage of religious development. The higher stage of religious development would be seen to be some kind of reaction or, or attitude and positioning oneself with vis-a-vis -vis God in terms of awe and, and reverence. And, and as everybody who's in this field notes, the most famous book that gives voice to these ideas is Rudolf Otto's The Idea of the Holy, where he develops a whole theory of religion in which what he calls the experience of the holy is one of mysterium tremendum a fascinans, that you have the sense of the uh, awful power of the deity and the fascination, the, the being tugged in and, and, and sort of distancing yourself simultaneously from something that is both great you know, and also the source of everything. Uh, but that I don't think is in these sources yet in any rich way. So the term takes out all new meanings and there's a denigration of, of fearing the deity itself. Um, the questions about the biblical text are really interesting. Um, the text about the um, spies, there's some kind of reflexivity in there, but that's one of the chief issues is how much do you have a reflexive self in biblical text? Most would say no. It's not like you look at yourself and you think about yourself and, and you think about what's going on inside of yourself. It's sort of like we real, it's still again very much about a hierarchical expression. We see ourselves as inferior to them. Uh, it's in, uh, Joshua Levinson is at Hebrew University, works on Agadah. He's shown that it's particularly in later in, in rabbinic Agadot, you start having a reflexive self. So I think maybe that text is really more about the idea that they, they recognize their own inferiority and they're giving expression to it through the metaphor of grasshoppers. 
the, the text about, um, um, let me see, I had uh, what I write together, um, conscientious objector, that, that's your question? Yeah, yeah, I think what's interesting, it, it, you could argue maybe that if the fear of the sin is the fear of committing the sin, as opposed to the fear you may suffer death because you're fearful of the battle because you're going to be a person who already comes to battle full of sins. And therefore you might be punished in the battle. Then of course, it depends how you look at, at this here. Uh, so the, the former fear of sinning would seem to be able to be translated as the basis for conscientious objection, perhaps. Uh, fear because I've already sinned. So what is Yirat Chet? Is it, is it a sense I'm trying to avoid sinning? Or is it more along the lines of, which we have particularly in texts like Chodayot in the Qumran literature, of people have the sense of personal wretchedness, as it were, that they're inherently a sinning person. And, and they kind of, and it's important to encourage that sense of, in, uh, of one's own sinful nature. So it's, it's interesting to try to figure out with Yirat Chet more about uh, uh, encouraging one's realizing one's own uh, ne uh, negative standing, or is it more about the potentiality of sin? And so should go through life constantly, very much what we think of, to use the word, haredim. Right? A hared is the word for tremble. And in many ways, the hared is probably, and there's a whole literature in Chassidut, yes, you could talk about primarily of fearing before of God's Romamut, but I think there's also clearly, at least contemporary expressions, a fear of constantly, I may sin if I do X, Y, or Z, and so I'm constantly checking, am I doing the right thing, the wrong thing, and maybe that's what Yerech uh, comes to mean. Interesting, there's a lot more to be said about this, especially when you get the later Jewish sources. The text from uh, Cain and Abel, uh, it's a very complicated passage to translate. I appreciate you asking that. And there's lots of ink spilt at this, uh, it's what sin crouches at the door. And, and is a chet in, in Hebrew? I didn't check, is that the, the, the Hebrew for the verse? Well, I think there it, it, it does express the recognition of the potentiality of humans of falling short of expectations of them. Uh, and that's, I think, very central to the already the basic biblical covenantals text, and uh, especially the book of Deuteronomy, uh, to go from Breshit to Devarim. But De Deuteronomy is loaded with, you know, and you're going to come into the land and watch out. You're going to potentially sin, and you're going to be attracted to the nations, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the being, it's interesting to think of the difference, and maybe we sort of end here, but or we can go on, but the difference between being sin-fearing and being God-fearing. And, and it's not to, to wrap up that the, the rabbis don't talk a lot about Yirat Hashem, Yirat Elohim. Those words are there. But this introduction of Yirat is novel in, in rabbinic thought. And, and, uh, uh, and, and that's a whole, and, and we could contextualize it uh, in terms of also New Testament sources are also interested in the realities of the sinful nature of humans and the whole understanding of Jesus as the expiation for our sinfulness. So that seems to be, maybe that's what's coming here is a emergence of not, not just being um, 
failing to fulfill the commandments, which is biblical, but all, somehow we're, we experience our sinful as sinful beings, which is different from b being a person who might sin at times. So something, something to think about here. And uh, I hope this uh, gives us some sense of what uh, our texts that in time become elaborated even further uh, throughout Jewish thinking and tradition over the ages and with great deal of uh, ink spilt on sorting out the relations, especially of Yira and Ahava. I like Ahava better than Yira, but uh, there have been Jewish thinkers who like Yira better than Ahava. So uh, I don't know, Reb Shmuley, if you have some closing comments. And nope, that's a great place to stop. This was very rich. We could have, we could have spent a few more hours talking about this material. And hopefully we'll have more opportunities in person to learn from you and maybe virtually also. My pleasure. My pleasure. I, I will let you know when I put this into an article form, where to find it. And, uh, oh, great. And, and it should come out. Wonderful. I wish you all a wonderful day. Thank you all for attending. Thanks. It's nice to see at least names of people, if I don't see the faces of people I know. And I hope everybody's well. And uh, may we all stay to you, Breen. May everybody remain healthy and, and wise Amazing. as well. <laughs> I'll leave the wealthy out, but the healthy and wise are <laughs>